You may remember that we are in a series about the mission of God, not only hoping to better understand what it is and how that helps us see God working throughout history, but also to better understand how the mission sheds light on the Bible. There are places throughout scripture that are confusing or hold tensions for us. And the mission of God can often help us better enter into those tricky spots. It doesn't necessarily solve them or smooth everything over. But at times, we will find that when we rightly understand God's purposes and mission, then we're able to better understand scripture as well. Today, we're picking up on a theme that starts at the beginning of the Bible, and it's holiness. Holiness comes up very early on because God is forming God's people Israel and says that they should be holy as God is holy. What I'd like for us to do together then is consider four tendencies that we might find are true for us as we think about holiness and check those four tendencies against what we understand of God's broader mission. So these four tendencies, first, we might connect holiness in our minds to the law, which is another term that often gets applied to the Pentateuch, which is another term for what we often find in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, these terms aren't actually all synonymous or interchangeable, but they are interconnected in the story. What happens then is that we might take that term, the law, and add on a contemporary understanding on top of it, seeing it as sort of legal, that these are the things that must be obeyed. Otherwise, a consequence, even a punishment, is deserved, and that's the system that God must be setting up as far as what holiness means. Here's the law, and you follow it, or else. A second tendency we might experience when it comes to holiness is related. We might find ourselves understanding keeping the law as a means to gain God's favor. Paul, for example, talks about how Jesus came and the law is no longer this force over us. A lot of times Paul's language about the law seems negative, that it was what earned God's favor, but Jesus is the ambassador of grace. Now, I don't think that's actually the best way to understand Paul's relationship to the law, but it does often cause us to think of the law as some sort of favor-earning system. By extension of holiness as being about the favor that God bestows upon us when we have worked really hard to be very obedient in every way. A third tendency when it comes to the idea of holiness is to see it as arbitrary, even kind of random. For example, this is Leviticus 20, verse 25, which says, You all shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not bring abomination on yourselves by animal or by bird or by anything with which the ground teems, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. And we hear God saying this to the Israelites, and it just doesn't seem to make very much sense to us now. Why do animals and birds matter so much? So much so that they get labeled an abomination, a way that isn't supposed to be marked by the people. It can seem arbitrary. On the other hand, the fourth tendency when it comes to holiness is a bit of the inverse, which is to see it as timeless, to see every bit of this law as something to be held for all time. It's 
the law, after all. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's especially fun if you get an English translation where Jesus says not one jot or tittle of the law. But hey, if Jesus is saying that about every little bit, that must make it really important. And so we see the law then as timeless. But none of these four tendencies really capture what holiness means or, more importantly, why holiness is meaningful. So I'd like for us to take a second pass at the list. And as we do, here's the question. Does holiness matter for us today? And if so, what form might it take in order to be meaningful now? Does holiness matter for us today? And if so, what form might it take in order to be meaningful now? So first, this phrase, the law. At a minimum, we need to remember that the Old Testament law that's in this Pentateuch, it's in no way legal. In fact, some Old Testament scholars make the point that if we mentally shift from the law to something more like teaching, instruction, or principles, all of those terms are more in the vein of how this collection of teaching functioned. It's guiding principles meant to teach the people what holiness looks like, how holiness is lived out. It's guidance and principles more than it is statutes to be obeyed or else face consequence. So removing legal can be a very helpful framing before we ever get into the content of these holiness uh, teachings themselves. Now, the word itself, holiness, it's fundamentally about being different or distinct. It means set apart. A place can be holy, set aside for a purpose. An item can be holy, marked for a distinct function. And a people can be holy, set aside to live differently for some purpose. And that purpose is not to earn God's favor. To our second point from the list, Israel is already favored. Exodus 19, 4, for example, God says to the nation, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you all on eagle's wings and brought you all to myself. Holiness isn't about earning favor. Holiness is about fulfilling the mission. It's about living differently and being set aside so that the life as the redeemed will look like the character of the redeemer. So these are instructions for holy living together. Less the law that governs a holy nation and more the principles that guide a holy way of life for a nation. And that brings us to the third point from our list that holiness can feel kind of arbitrary. So instead, what if we consider this instruction as particular? Not arbitrary, but particular. It's for Israel in the midst of the ancient Near East. It is bound up to their particular experiences and story. It's bound up in God's particular identity as their redeemer. Simply because God chose and freed Israel, they're already holy. And because Yahweh is unique, they should live uniquely. So to illustrate, Let's circle back to the example I gave before of the seemingly arbitrary verse about clean and unclean animals. 
and instead add the verses before and after it. So I read Leviticus 20, 25 earlier. Now I'm going to read Leviticus 20, 24 to 26. Let's see what we find. I am Yahweh, your God. I have separated you from the peoples. You all shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean and between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not bring abomination on yourselves by animal or by bird or by anything with which the ground teems, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you all from the other peoples to be mine. Those bookends transform the seemingly arbitrary into something intentional. These are the teachings that help Israel be who they are. And this is about how Israel, particularly as a nation, can live in a way that is separate because it is aligned with Yahweh's own separateness. God is not like the gods of the nations, and therefore Israel should not be like those nations either. Their culture should be distinct, which as a relevant aside, anytime the word abomination comes up, it's probably worth double checking. The word has different meanings in different Old Testament books, depending on who the writer was and how they wanted to use it. One common one is about things that are as they should be. This should be how it is for you. It's not always moral. It's often cultural. Things that are in alignment with the culture God is trying to create or out of alignment with that culture. Now, on we go. When Riley started school about a month ago, our friends, the Hogans, sent a Marco Polo, which is a video app, and they got on the line and offered us their family motto, knowing that Riley was starting in a new school and just might need it. They say each day as they head in, be kind, have courage, ask for help. Hogan's do it afraid. Their mantra is meant to say, this is who we are, but also there's all sorts of times when we're not, right? They don't always live out their identity, but failing to do so doesn't change what makes Hogan's distinct. Now, in a similar way, holiness is what makes Israel distinct. They're already holy because Yahweh picked them. Then they live it out in what one scholar called practical holiness. It's all a particular way one nation could live in harmony with and be reflecting of God's character in the ancient Near East. Seeing how this is particular helps answer our question, which you remember is, does holiness matter for us today? And if so, what form might it take in order to be meaningful now? Does it matter? Yes, because we share the same purpose to live in a way that is unique, not for its own sake, but unique in ways that are reflective of God's own uniqueness. So what form might it take? This is where the particularity of the biblical teachings can actually help us decide what stays and goes, so to speak, for today. It helps us identify the larger principle, the part that is timeless. Now, that was point four, if you remember, that sometimes holiness can be seen as timeless in every single detail. But the details aren't timeless, not in a blanket sort of way. The particulars aren't timeless because they're for ancient Israel. But the purpose and the principles are. And so, for example, Christopher Wright lists the way the principles rise up amidst the particulars. Principles of economic justice 
fair treatment for those who are coming in as resident aliens, the principles of sexual integrity, the principles of family respect and mutuality. These principles come through even though the particulars are very culturally bound. The particulars were a tool to accomplish the bigger purpose. They were a means of assisting God's mission. Israel was meant to make God known. And living in a holy way, a different sort of way, a set-aside sort of way, was a tool to make God known. Their way of living by a different ethic than the rest of the nation, their practical holiness, meant that Israel was to be Yahweh-like rather than like the nations. And that's a purpose we share. And we will find that the principles that guided their holiness can still be really helpful today as we discern our own set of particulars. As we do, we will find ourselves like they did, practicing practical holiness. So one last piece then before we take some time to respond to all of this. Seeing the holiness teachings as the particular contextual teachings about how ancient Israel lives a distinct Yahweh-like life together helps us also understand how Jesus relates to the law when he comes. Because we have words like Matthew 5, 17 to 20, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The purpose must be fulfilled, Jesus says. Not the particulars, but the purpose. In fact, the particulars are changing even as Jesus arrives because Jesus lays down his own life as the final sacrifice, the end of a sacrificial system. The particular that matters now from here on out is that Jesus is Lord. So it's not surprising that Jesus too teaches his followers that the commandments are all in service of the purpose of loving God and loving others. Loving the one that makes you holy and loving people because that is practical holiness enacted. And so we hear Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40 say, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This purpose is timeless, Jesus is saying, and now it's expressed in me. Just as Yahweh made Israel holy, so too I make you all holy. And just as the law taught a way to live distinctly in order to love God and neighbor, I too teach you to live distinctly in order to love God and neighbor. Timeless purpose, unique particulars, practical holiness, so that we live Yahweh-like, Jesus-like among our communities today. Now, when we were together live, Dan led us in a time to respond where we circled back to the core question of what holiness would look like in our context today. We spent some time writing and considering the ways that, practically speaking, we might live different, not in an arbitrary sort of way, but in a meaningful one, one that would cue the people around us towards love of God and neighbor. The examples can look really different based on our personalities 
our social context, the way that we interact with people around us. And the importance of an exercise like this is that we all know that there are folks who have a very clear sense of what they believe holiness should be for all of us today, no matter what. Instead, we wanted to enact our core value of openness to God's own spirit, inviting God to lead us in our particular ways that holiness might take shape for us. So if you have a minute when you turn off this podcast or perhaps later today, grab a piece of paper and ask yourself, what form might holiness take for me in order to be connected to the bigger purpose of loving God and loving neighbor? Is there some way that I might live distinct, not in an arbitrary way, but in a meaningful one and see what God might have for you. And so may the God who invites us into harmony with and to be reflections of God's own lovely character, empower you to live a life that is holy. And may you find that as you do, God whispers, way to go to you. In the name of our triune God and for God's glory. Amen.